as it's laid out. So, as you uh, go through the Bible and you uh, put it all together, you get kind of a picture of how the whole Bible lays itself out. Now, this is going to be invaluable for us as we uh, move into the next couple of years, you know, of really building on top of that foundation uh, with all the different ministries that uh, God will open up for us. But uh, book by book, you're seeing basically how these books fit into the overall picture of what God is doing, not only with Israel, but in your own individual lives and in relationship to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. And every week we've kind of looked at this thing, and as you know, we're in the prophets right now, and the books of the prophets are uh, some tremendous material. And uh, last week we saw how, the last time we saw how the book of Joel was a picture of the second coming of Christ with all the keys that you need to really uh, be able to put much of your Bible together. And I showed you how that the key phrases and the key words were so vital uh, and laid out those books. And then today we're going to look at the book of Amos. And the book of Amos, like the book of Joel, is a book that is written before the captivity. Again, it's written to the ten tribes of Israel that have been scattered to the north. There's nine chapters in it. And uh, where Joel focuses on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Amos focuses on one of the key concepts of the Bible, and that is the restoration of the nation of Israel. There is no greater theme in the Bible, as we talked about when we started our study, there's no greater theme in the Bible than the day of the Lord, or the second coming of Christ. And one of the things that takes place when Christ returns is, he establishes the nation of Israel back in the land which they never uh, leave again and they never are, are taken from again. And that all is covered as we saw in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48 and many other places as we come through the Bible. But Amos focuses on the restoration of the nation of Israel. And the breakdown of the book is, is real basic and real simple. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, remember now there's only nine chapters. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 deal with God's judgment to the Gentile nations at the second coming of Christ. Chapter 3 through chapter 6, God deals with uh, God's judgment to the nation of Israel uh, during the tribulation period. And then chapter 7 through chapter 9 uh, are great chapters or some of the greatest material in the Bible on at the second coming of Christ, after God's judgments, how He restores the nation of Israel. So with that in mind, let's ask God's blessing this morning as we look into His Word. Father, we thank Thee and praise Thee for the Lord Jesus. We love You so much and thank You for all that You do for us. We thank You for uh, this day uh, doubly being special, Father, with the marriage today of, of Jason and Kelly. We thank You for the young man and lady that is here this morning, Father. May they get a blessing from it. May our own people enjoy it, Lord, and learn as we grow to be more like You every day. And we'll thank You and praise You in Jesus' name. For His sake we ask it. Amen. Now, uh, in chapter 1, uh, in chapter 1, we have basically an, an intro to uh, the book of Amos. And the book of Amos talks about how that Amos is just a shepherd. He's from a small town in Judea called Tekoa. Now, that doesn't mean much to most people, and it's pretty insignificant in our study here, or as it would seem. But Tekoa is about 12 miles from Jerusalem, just a small town whose main trade at that time was, was sheep and being shepherds. It's six miles southeast of Bethlehem. And uh, Amos is a contemporary of Hosea. And we find that during that period of time, they both are prophesying and going through uh, and preaching to the nation of Israel. The book of Amos is quoted two times in your New Testament. Once in the book of Acts, 
or twice in the book of Acts, once in Acts chapter 7, and then again in Acts chapter 15. Um, you remember last week, and all this seems insignificant, and you're saying to me probably in your mind, why is he taking so much time talking about a little place called Tekoa, the fact that Amos was just a shepherd, really a nobody, and what is the, what is, there's a lot to this. And while this may seem insignificant, it's going to come back to play in our study a little bit later on, but just put in your mind what I just gave you as basically an intro of how insignificant it seems that Amos really is and the place that he comes from. You remember last time we were together, I showed you a great truth. I showed you and we talked about how that it's really hard to find good material about the minor prophets. Because seemingly people just cannot, the scholars, the educated, the guys who write the material, the commentaries on the Bible, seemingly when it comes to these books, they draw a blank. And we talked about the concept of how that scholarship in the educated world always looks at the Bible as a, a, a... containing God's Word and containing truth, but never looks at it in a personal aspect of being the words for you in particular where God really gives you a book with you in mind. Higher education, and I've I've experienced it all my life in the ministry, I know that uh, many, many men today look at the Bible as just a collection of good sayings. I know that many, many men teaching today around this country are talking about how that the Bible contains the Word of God, but it really isn't the Word of God in the aspect that it will really do anything for you and change your life in particular. And of course, we know that's not true if you believe the Bible is the absolute infallible Word of God. We know it from the aspect that God wrote it with a personal application for you and for me. And that's what we believe here, and that's what Christians have believed, real Christians have believed, all down through history. So last time, I showed you the concept between the Word and the words, the collective thought and the personal things that uh, really make the Bible come alive. And there lies the major problem with figuring out the minor prophets. Because if you reject the individual words that God wrote in that Bible to you, if you reject those, and you just think in an abstract concept way, you're never going to figure much out in the Word of God. The Bible is a personal book written by a personal God who wants to be your personal Savior. And after you become His personal Savior, or He becomes your personal Savior, then you enter into a daily personal relationship where He reveals things to you as you go down through life. And uh, that's what God does, and He substantiates those things with the Word of God. But I'll show you another reason why men of higher education really have a problem with these books. And it comes down to another great issue that you need to understand, and that is the doctrine of the restoration of the nation of Israel. I know that we are living in the end times, and I know that we are getting closer to those times, I know that for a number of reasons. One of the ways I know it is because the Bible itself gives us the parameters that we may know what times and seasons we live in. But I'll tell you another way. Another way that you know that things are changing very quickly is because of the attitude that many Christians are having and many religious groups are having toward the nation of Israel. We're living in a day and age where the doctrine of God restoring Israel is becoming a, an extinct concept. Hardly anybody believes today that God is really going to restore the nation of Israel. <clears throat> We've come into what we call sometimes covenant theology, 
which has been around for a while, but I've seen in the last 10 or 15 years a rebirth of it as far as uh, theologians and, and men who uh, teach things about the Bible believing that God is all finished with the nation of Israel. And it takes an anti-Semitic concept that God, because the Jews killed Christ, because the Jews have rejected God all down through history, that God is finally finished with them. And the church now is going to reap all the blessings that God uh, once had for the nation of Israel. A while back we talked about the three viewpoints that men take when it comes to the second coming of Christ and the restoration of the nation of Israel. We talked about the amillennial. We talked about the post-millennial. And we talked about the pre-millennial. And we talked about how if you believe the Bible and you take the Bible as a Bible believer, then your position is going to be a a premillennial approach. You're going to believe that God uh, is going to restore the nation of Israel. In fact, it's really uh, one of Paul's major issues as he comes through uh, his writings. For in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says this. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Now let me just say this. <clears throat> you want a good study sometime? If you've got a rainy afternoon and you can't really do anything, you want a good study, I'll give you a good study. That's Paul's favorite expression when he's dealing with God's people. Why? Because God's people are mostly ignorant of the things in the Bible that they really need to know. If you want a good study sometime, there's seven things in the New Testament that Paul says a child of God should not be ignorant of. And it's those seven things that God's people are the most oblivious of when it comes to understanding the Bible today. Seven things in there, seven times, Paul says to the body of Christ, you and me, I would not have you to be ignorant of this. And then he tells you what you need to know to get along in life as a child of God. And, un and unbelievably, those are the seven things that God's people have no clue on today of what God wants them to do. It's no wonder Bible Christianity is in such a mess today. But one of those things is found, as we're reading here, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, it says, I will not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and that all Israel shall be saved. In verse 26, two verses there. That's one of those things that Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant about. The fact that God is going to restore the nation of Israel. The fact that God is not finished with Israel. In fact, he goes on in that great chapter and says, Hey, look, guys, you better understand that God has a special place for the nation of Israel. And you as the church, you as Christians, better realize that uh, you better not take the position that you're going to be against the nation of Israel. And why, my, my, that's exactly what the majority of Bible Christianity has done today. We have taken the position that God is done with the nation of Israel. That's why when you reject that teaching, then you cannot figure out the minor prophets or the major prophets because they're all dealing with, in some form or the other, the day that God comes back, the theme of the Bible, the second coming of Christ, and the establishment of the nation, or the reestablishment, I should say, of the nation of Israel. And, of course, that's the, uh, that's the whole key. I said earlier that Amos deals with that book. Let me tell you something, and you'll see this when we get down to the end of the message this morning. Chapter 9 is one of the greatest 
chapters in all the Bible that deals with God restoring the nation of Israel. And it plays a significant part in the history of the nation of Israel. And we'll talk about that here in just a little book, a little bit. Now, the book of Amos, doctrinally, we know that it deals with the restoration of the nation of Israel. Historically, it's God giving the nation of Israel judgments and then God keeping His promises to take care of her. And of course, inspirationally, for you and for me, we look at this book and want to get something for our lives today and tomorrow, we see again a continuation of the great parallels between Israel and the church. But you know what? The book of Amos is built on six great concepts. And this is where I want to go now. Now that we've laid out an introduction, gave you a baseline to build on, the book of Amos is built on six incredible concepts that really will change the nation of Israel and will change you and me if we see them in the right perspective. And, and really, the book comes alive about, around these six concepts. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I gave you a new word in your vocabulary. I gave you the word salient. And I talked about how that there are salient verses in the Bible. The word salient means to jump up, to pop out. The word salient means to stick out, to leap out. And when I say that there are salient verses in the Bible that every child of God needs to mark and know, I'm saying this. There are certain verses, you'll read along in a passage of Scripture, and all of a sudden, bang, some concept will jump out. And that concept will just illuminate itself against everything else and stick out to you. That's a salient verse. And the Bible is filled with them. I said I've got over 400 and some marked in my Bible over the years that, I, that have just leaped. Now what may be a salient verse for me may not, because sometimes they're based on your own personal experiences. Sometimes they're based on doctrinal issues and they'll jump up to everybody. But sometimes you find, you know, when you went through a tough, tough time in life, God gave you a promise, God gave you a verse, God gave you something, and bang, those verses jump out and they mean something to you. So, Everybody should have them in your life, but this book is built on six concepts which are salient verses that you need to see. Now, the first one is found in Amos chapter 3, verse 3. And this is so true. And this is something in life you need to learn. When I was kidding Jason a little while ago, I told him, I said, Jason, your friends were around you two times, once at your wedding and once at your funeral. And we laugh at that, but you know what? That is a truth in life. And there are certain things in life that are absolutely true. And the quicker you learn them, the better life will be for you. And if you never learn them, you're going to have some problems. And it's one of those things where uh, I, I, like, I, like, I like to hear sayings. that and A lot of times you hear them from unsaved people, but they're true. And the unsaved people don't know what they mean, but uh, I know what they mean because I know the verse that backs them up. And to me, they're great little analogies of life. Maybe just a one-liner. Uh, I heard one list last week that I think is really great. It said, beware of a naked man who wants to give you his shirt. Now stop and think about that. Beware of the naked man who wants to give you his shirt. Now that's catchy, and you'll remember it, and you from years from now, you'll think, see something and think of that and give me the credit for it that I've jogged your memory and implanted that in there. But you know what? A naked man doesn't have a shirt. So what the principle is, be careful when somebody says he's going to give you something when you know deep down inside he doesn't have what he says he's going to give you. Now that's a lesson in life you need to learn. And the fact that it's a 
little neat little saying that puts it in perspective for you, but I listen to the unsaved world. I, I read books. I, I, you know, I'll listen to things that people say. Because sometimes guys will get a, a concept. They won't know what to do with it in the Bible, but it's a true thing of life. And somebody said one time, well, you know what? Uh, so-and-so did something to me, and I want revenge. My little saying is, if you sit by the river long enough, the body of your enemy will float by. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now here's one that's in the Bible that is great and is so true. And the first great principle found in verse 3 of Amos chapter 3 is a great question that is asked and it must be answered. And it simply says this, can two walk together except they be agreed? And the answer is simply, no they can't. No they can't. Now that's a hard verse for a Christian world that is a hard verse for a Christian world who wants to get along with everything and everybody. How many times I've seen Christians that had to deal with doctrinal issues that were not just petty deals, that were major issues in the Bible that really, you keeping them or not keeping them, made a big difference with God. And they would all kind of just pacify each other and say, well, you know what, as Christians, let's just agree to disagree. How many times have I heard that? That is a Laodicea concept, man. Well, let's just agree to disagree because the bigger issue is Christ. The bigger issue is God. The bigger issue is Christianity. So let's just, you know what, there are times that you can do that and then there's times that you can't do that. I'll tell you what, Christ found himself in that same situation at the first coming of Christ. He really did. When he showed up here, he had, the, he had the, the nation of Israel that was in cahoots, cahoots with the Roman Empire. He had the scribes and the Pharisees that were different, but they were politically connected. And they all were against him. And the Bible says very clearly and plainly that uh, when Christ shows up, uh, he does what he does best. And the Bible says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. He said, you know what? You guys, I'm going to paraphrase now. He said, you guys think I came down here to get everybody together. He said, I didn't, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. I came down to separate everybody. In other words, he was truth in a world where there was no truth. And if there's anything that will separate the world, it was Christ. And if there's anything in the day and age that we live in that will separate people, it's the word of God in truth. Now, I'm not saying you got to, I'm not a hard-nosed guy that just won't work with anybody. Man, I'm the nicest guy you ever met in your life. And I'll work with anybody, anytime, anywhere, any place. And I'll go to whatever extremes I got to try to help somebody out. But the bottom line is, truth is true. The bottom line is, let God be true and every man a liar. That's the bottom line. And there are issues that are very clear. And there are issues that are very clear. And I'm telling you. When you have somebody that has a fundamental difference over the Word of God with you, now I'm just giving you a little piece of wisdom here. You aren't going to walk with them very far, and if you think you're walking with them and getting along with them, you better look behind you because they're going to stab you in the back at some point. The thing that makes us cohesive, the thing that makes this church the blessing that it is, the thing that makes this church work the way it does, the thing that makes this church... The, the, the joy that it is, it's not any one individual in here and your nice personality or the fact that you're a great person. It's the fact that there's a cohesiveness of one concept of the Bible that just makes everything and solidifies everything and makes everything just wonderful. And I'm telling you, 
All you got to do is have a little time with somebody who doesn't believe the Bible or doesn't believe in Christianity or doesn't believe in truth or takes a position that, you know, that uh, is opposite to what Christ took and you'll see very quickly that the great principle is true. Two people cannot walk together except they be agreed. And of course, the key is walk. And in Psalms chapter 1, we see, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of godly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law doth he meditate day and night. The Bible says that, that uh, our walk with God is based on the Word of God. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says that uh, it's wrong to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I know that we always take that verse and we always use that that a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. And that's true. That's a true concept and that verse teaches that. But if you read the whole chapter, it goes much more beyond that. It talks about the fact that we as Christians don't have anything in common with the world. We don't have anything in common with the things of the devil. We don't have anything in common or fellowship with, in fact, it lists a whole thing down through there, a series of things, and the last thing it says is fellowship, with, or concord, fellowship with Belial. That's the Old Testament name for the devil. And it's showing you very clearly this principle all the way back in the book of Amos that two people cannot walk together except they be agreed. Hence, go to the Chiefs-Oakland game this afternoon and see that for a fact. Americans, born in this country, American blood in their veins, eat in American restaurants, go to American churches. You have Baptists, Catholics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists. But when it comes to the Chief Raiders game, they ain't walking together. Why? Because that principle is true. When you get a concept that you really believe in and somebody else has a concept that they really believe in, it's tough to walk very far in agreement. And that is something that you better learn as a child of God if you're ever going to be used in ministry because once you take the Bible as the final authority and once you believe the Bible is what God claims it to be, you're going to find out there that there are people that you thought were your friends and you're going, what the Bible will do will show you how shallow those relationships really were to begin with because real relationships are based on an absolute principle in the Word of God. That's why some of the greatest friends you will ever have in all of the world are people who are committed to you and the Word of God together, that they have no ulterior motive, they have no hidden agenda, they just love you because they love that book, and they love God, and everybody just loves, and they are agreed, and because of that, you can walk together. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. And that is one of the great salient verses in all of the Bible. And it's the first verse that uh, the book of Amos is built on because that's what Israel was trying to do. They were trying to walk with the world, walk with the other religions, and walk with God. They were trying to go with Baal worship. <clears throat> they were trying to go with Molech and all the other gods. And they were trying to go all that route and yet still hold hands with God and walk with God. And it could not happen. It can't happen. 
It's an impossibility. It's one of those things that's an absolute law in the Bible, and there is nothing in the world that you can change it. And if you violate it and kid yourself into thinking that you can, you, like Israel, will wind up on the short end of the stick being used and abused by the very people who you thought were your friends. It's just the way that it is. Learn that lesson. And then there's another great concept, or the second great concept, is found in chapter 3, verse 7. And he says this, and this is a good one. Well, the other one was a good one, but this is a positive one. Let's put it that way. We all want to leave here today with a positive experience, so let's, let's focus on this for a while. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophet. Now, that's a great verse. You know what that verse simply says? It simply says that God will always show you what he's going to do before he does it. What greater revelation could you have of the Word of God than that? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, and uh, I'm just laying it out, man, it's, it's true. Ever notice in the Bible, just like the seven things that Paul says we're not to be ignorant of, ever notice how the Holy Spirit of God will say little things like this? He'll say, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what he's doing is grabbing your ears and saying, listen to this. Don't miss what I'm going to say. Another couple places he'll say, Let the, hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. Anytime God <coughs> designates to you to hear this or hear what he's saying, you better just clear off a spot and say, you know what? God's got something here he wants me to learn because he does. He does. And the great concept about God is that God shows you things before those things happen. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9, another salient verse. You're going to get a lot of them today. He says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And then Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Whoa, what a great salient verse here. Another one. He says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the word of thy law. You see those two verses? Those two verses say that God gives you things. He shows you from the word of God what happens before they're going to take place. When God shows you those great concepts, they become yours. That's why you look at anybody who has really been in with God for a while, or really in the Bible for a while, when you look inside his Bible, it'll look like a spaghetti dinner without the sauce. There will be notes everywhere. There'll be, and the old adage is, you can't go to heaven without a red pencil. I mean, there will be red things marked in red, marked in yellow, highlighted here, however you choose to do it. There'll be concept, there'll be cross-references, there'll be everything. Why? Because God has showed that person something, and that person saw it was personal, it was to them, and God gave it to them, and now they've recorded it in their Bible so that their Bible becomes a ready reference. And I've told you before, you can go to the Christian bookstore, and you can buy a Schofield reference Bible great Bible. You can buy a Riley reference Bible. You can buy a Thompson Chain reference Bible. You can buy a Spurgeon reference Bible. You can buy a Jerry Falwell reference Bible. You can buy a John R. Rice reference Bible. You can buy a study Bible put out by some of the greatest men uh, that the Christian world has ever seen or thinks they've seen. And you can find book, you can find Bibles where somebody has said, hey look, let's take this guy's notes 
of all that he learned and put them in a Bible and then people will buy it so they can get the notes of the great man Spurgeon or the great man John R. Rice or the great Jack Hiles or the great Jerry Falwell or the great whatever. And so people go out, shell out 150 bucks and uh, buy this Bible and go home and they think now that they've got the secrets of the ministry and the Bible because I have captured the mindset of this great Christian. We sell wide margin Bibles in the back. They're a lot like this one. They don't have any notes in them whatsoever. You know why? Because the simple fact is this, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest study Bible in the world is your own. It's the one that God shows you those secret things and you put them in there. What good is something that God showed Jack Hiles going to help me? I ain't Jack Hiles. What good is something that God gave Spurgeon going to do me? I live 200 years later and I ain't Spurgeon. I'm telling you what, there comes a time when we have to live, we have to quit living on the spirituality of somebody else and develop your own relationship and learn what that Bible says to you. And surely the Lord will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants, the prophets. And you know what? God did that to Israel and He gave them the prophets and the prophets came to them and said, Hey! This is what God is going to do. And you know what the kings and the leaders of Israel did? They rejected them. God wrote you a more sure word of prophecy that God says in that book, Hey, Bob, this is what I'm going to do. And in both cases, the Holy Spirit of God met with rejection. In the Old Testament, the leaders of Israel killed the prophets and didn't follow what they said. In the New Testament, we reject the Word of God and we think that some kind of secular understanding or reasoning is going to be better than the Word of God. And of course, that simply is not true. And that is the second great concept that this book is built on that you need to understand in your own personal life. Again, the great parallels. The great parallels. And uh, I know that people don't like that, but there's a reason why God does it. Sometimes you've got a little time, read Isaiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 12. And that's why God reveals things and shows us the things that He gives to us that He may not give to somebody else. Quite an interesting little passage back there, just something you can, you know, want to put on your refrigerator on a little magnet sometime and remember it the rest of your life. But anyway, all right, the third great concept. And this is a fun one to me. I like when, and please don't take this wrong, because I'm, I'm not a mean-spirited person. I am as gentle as a lamb, and I am just a, I'm, I'm just a good person. Right, Jamie? That's right. You all know that. So I'm not, I, but, I, I, but you've got to have fun in life. I don't play video games. I don't have a, you know, I, I just look at stupid people and stupid things. And I don't mean stupid in a bad way. I would never call anybody stupid. I would say that breast stupidity was a virtue, but I wouldn't say you're stupid. <laughs> Now, this is, this is great. <clears throat> Look at chapter 5, verse 26. I love when Christians show how shallow they are in the Word of God and then, because of their shallowness, want to defend their shallowness. I think that's the most hilarious thing in the world. I'm going to tell you a story here in a minute. Look at verse 26. Chapter 5, verse 26. But ye have borne <coughs> the tabernacle of your Moloch, and Churin, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Now, here's a place in the book of Amos where the Bible says that the nation of Israel got into false gods. Moloch, 
We've talked about him before, the fire god. And all the imagery that they get along with this. Now this is brought up again in the book of Acts chapter 7, and this is one of the places that it quotes the book of Amos. As I said, there was two in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 43, it says this. It says, Yea, ye took up tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your god Repham, figures which you made to worship them, and I carry you away beyond Babylon. Now, how many of you have seen that little star called the Star of David? Now, let me preface my remarks by saying this. The nation of Israel today, as we know it, is 100 million light years from where they were in the Old Testament with Solomon and David. They have gotten almost 4,000 years they have been out of fellowship from this captivity. They have got the Jewish faith today almost resembles nothing of what God really intended for it to be. And a lot of things you see in the Jewish faith today, and I'm not fighting it, I'm just telling you. I believe they're God's chosen people. I believe in spite of all their apostasy and things that went wrong and now they're wrong, that's what the Bible is talking about. The whole book of Amos is talking about how they have done what's wrong with God and God is going to whip them, so to speak, but then God is going to bring them back. Well, one of the things that they did... <coughs> is they build up all these false gods. Time and time and time and time and time again, the nation of Israel rejected the true God of Israel and made their own gods. All the way back when God just brought them out of Egypt. Moses, where's he's at? He's up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments and they hadn't been out three weeks. And the children of Israel are down there because Moses has been gone for 40 days. They get this molten calf that they're going to worship. They, are, they just keep going into sin and after other gods, a lot like we do. And <clears throat> during this time, they got this god, Repham, who was connected with Moloch. And they come up with this <clears throat> six-pointed star, which is commonly called today the Star of David. There isn't anywhere, any place in the Bible where the nation of Israel, by God, was told to have any six-pointed star anywhere. That is the God of Repham. That is something that they have brought with them through their captivity when they forsook God. And here today, <coughs> Christians, I see it all the time. <coughs> Years ago, I was on a mission trip, and we had a, a host, a couple, a nice couple, Christian pastor and his wife, but didn't have a clue. And she knew who I was and knew what I believed about the Bible. And she was giving me, she gave me a tough time. Nice way, but well, not a bad way, tough time. We were having sparring back and forth, you know. So one morning we get out there, get on the bus. And we're sitting down there and we get on the bus. And she gets on the bus. She's dressed over in a very classy lady. And she had her little six-pointed star David on. And she's giving me a tough time and back and forth about, about the Bible, you know. And just sparring with me. Nothing serious, you know. But, I mean, you know what? My, my, my philosophy in life is this. Hey, I'm a big boy. I can take it. I have fun with it. But you know what? No quarter asked, no quarter given. If you dish it out, you better be able to take it. So we're sitting there and on the bus, and I said, oh, by the way, I see, I see you got your demon star on this morning. Now, she was sparring with me, but suddenly when I started to spar back, she got offended. She said, what do you mean, demon star? This represents that I'm a spiritual Jew. I said, that represents you're in spiritual apostasy. I said, you might as well go out and get a Satan pendulum and put it around your neck. Oh, 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 oh. She didn't have a clue. Then I took her in the Bible. 
the one she had ridiculed for the last three weeks, and showed her where that star came from. Now, figure this out, only in a woman's mind. Instead of saying, they were aware of that again. The Bible just showed me. She got mad at me for showing her that her $50 necklace was not biblical. Now, how do you figure that? Hey, you know what? That's just the way life is. I can't help it. But I know this. That's a great concept to tell you that you've got to be careful with religious symbols. And you've got to be careful with things. Man, don't you know those giants back there in 2 Samuel? Don't you know where that six points come from? Don't you know that six is the number of man in the Bible? Don't you know those giants back there just by a strange thing that he would tell you that they all had six toes and six fingers? You only got five. They had six. Great on the computer, but... I mean, if you're into doing this, you're losing. But I'm telling you, it ain't in the Bible. <clears throat> and what I'm saying all that to say this, gang, the Bible, something has to be your authority in life. Now, in her case, it was the jewelry store. But in your case and my case, it has to be the Bible. I've told you this before. Hey, you know what? There isn't anything that I hold dear that I wouldn't throw out and change in a minute if that book tells me that ain't the right way it's supposed to be. I don't have any personal preferences when it comes to God and the Bible. I just want to do what's right. And whatever the Bible says right is, it is. If I had a, I don't even know, if I had some Christian symbol on my lapel that I wore because it identified me and suddenly I got reading in the Bible and found out that that's not what it was, you think I'd get mad at God for ruining my... My, I'd throw that thing, get rid of it, drop it like a heartbeat. You know why? Because more important to me is anything I believe and do and think and say is what the absolute truth of the Word of God is. Let God be true and every man a liar has to come down to that. So that's the, that's the third concept. Then there's the fourth great concept. Find this in chapter 7. I told you at the start of this message how insignificant Amos' life was. Watch this. Verse 10, then, then, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent Jehoram, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. So Amaziah said unto Amos, <clears throat> O thou seer, see, Amos sees some things that other people don't see. Go flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, <clears throat> for it is the king's chapel, it is the king's court. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I am no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. But I was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Wow, what a job description. You know what I call this chapter? The great nobody in a nation of somebodies. Little Amos, a nobody, who God called. He was a herdsman. His big deal in life was picking up sycamore fruit. And God reached down and said, Amos, I'm going to send you to my nation with the right message and the right truth. 
because big-time Amaziah just isn't getting the job done. And when Amaziah sees him, hears him, hears his negative message, he says, well, don't prophesy here anymore, pal. Why don't you go on down the road someplace and preach there? We, don't, we got a nice positive spin here. We got everything going just right. We don't need anybody to rock the boat. We got a good deal going. In fact, I don't know how much you know about the Bible, but look at the deal they got in verse 13. Anymore at Bethel. You know what Bethel means in the Bible? Bethel means the house of bread. It means the house of bread. Or the house of God. The house of bread or the house of God. Bethel is a picture of the church concept. First time it starts to show up back there in the Bible is with Jacob. And Jacob, every time he gets out of fellowship with God, he goes back to Bethel. And Bethel represents where you and Christ are exactly where you need to be. And it's a picture in the Old Testament of the relationship that you and I have with Christ in the church. Not the building, but the body of Christ, the church. Now look at this. He said, verse 13, but don't prophesy, but prophesy not again anymore at Bethel, no more preaching in the church, <clears throat> for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. Whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean it's the king's chapel and the king's court? It's the house of God. But you see what the concept of the church has been done? They don't have a pastor anymore. Now they got a king. And it's not a church anymore. Now it's a chapel. And it's a nice little place to get a nice little warm feeling and then leave and go home feeling nice about yourself because nobody really wants to preach or hear the truth. And when God takes the insignificant little Amos, the little shepherd boy who was not a prophet nor a son of the prophet, who was just a little more sycamore fruit picker-upper, and he, God takes him and sends him down to the main leaders of Israel with the real message of God, they didn't appreciate it. I'm going to tell you something. That's what's wrong with Christianity today. They don't want to hear the negative message. I'm telling you. You keep the thing in perspective. The Bible says that which is a highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In Luke chapter 16 verse 15. And that's true of Christianity, man. I'm telling you what. The nation of Israel during this time, they had a priest. Amaziah. They had a chapel. They had everything going. And it was all nice and religiously. Everything was just perfect. It was real nice. The only problem was God wasn't there. There was no real preaching, no real message of God. They had a superficial concept with God. And when God sent them the little guy to bring the message from God, they said, down the road, Sonny, preach at somebody else. Don't rock the boat. We got a good thing going here. We got a good little place here. Nice little messages, nice little sermonettes. We can buy them on cassettes, preached by little preacherettes. But no truth, no concepts, no power. Then the fifth great concept, chapter 8. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from north even to the east. They shall run uh, to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Bible says there's a, there was a famine during that time. We saw why in the last concept. 
It's because Amaziah and the king, they didn't want to hear the message of God. They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear, and they didn't want it to be negative. They wanted it to be positive. And now we find in the next concept that the problem they had is the same problem we've got in the church today, in Christianity today. It's a famine. It's a famine. Oh, we got more to eat. I was talking to my wife the other night. But every time we drive somewhere, we're driving down here, and I'm saying, I mean, they're building new restaurants, they're building new places. I, just, I said to her, and everybody says the economy's in a mess. Look at all these new buildings, shopping center after shopping center after shopping center with restaurant upon restaurant upon restaurant. Every place you go, something new is popping up. Man, I didn't think there was enough people out there to support all this stuff. But there is. You know why? People like to eat. Hey, I ain't fighting it. You can tell I'm on a level. I got the bubble in the middle, man. I know where I'm at. But I'm telling you, that's. But we got plenty of food today. We can go wherever you want to eat. Right down the road here, man. You know, you used to go to the grocery store to buy food to go home and cook the food. Now you go to the grocery store and you eat there before you buy the food. You used to go to Jake Gold Car Place gets car fixed. Now they got restaurants in the car places. So when you get your car fixed while they fix your car, you can get something to eat. This country is eat crazy, man. I'm all for it, by the way, but it is. But at the same time, the Bible says there is a famine. And it's a famine not of bread, not of, the, not of water, not of things to eat, but there is a famine of the Word of God, and God's people are starving to death spiritually. Welcome to the nation of Israel in 606 B.C. God's people starving to death in the midst of affluency, welcome to the body of Christ in 2004 A.D. The body of Christ is starving to death spiritually while we have everything else in the world to eat. I've seen some great parallels in this world. I've been into Romania and been into Hungary where when you went down to the grocery store, I ain't kidding you, there was one, two jars of rotten peaches on the shelf and that's all there was in the store that was three times the size of this room. I watched women stand in line for a piece of bread at a bakery, and the line was 500 feet long, man, and they ran out of bread before they got halfway through the line. I watched them grow chickens and food to try to survive. I watched, I watched them go down to the grocery store where there was nothing that you'd even want to eat. I watched them wait in line to get one little piece of half a loaf of bread. But yet I watched those people be so strong spiritually because they may have had a famine of natural food, but there was no famine of the Word of God in their life. And we come to America. Oh, yes. Here we are. Man, you can't walk ten, ten, you can't drive a block in any direction without bumping into a fast food place or a restaurant or some place to eat. It's everywhere. And we have everything we want. You walk into a grocery store, it's hard to find out where you're at. I mean, I mean you need to have a road map or a, a trip plan just to go to the grocery store. I mean, they got everything you want. And you just drive down and you throw it in. And we think absolutely nothing of it. But yet we're starving it spiritually. I talked a little bit ago about why Christians were ignorant. I talked about how that Christians could get messed up and... and, and on the star of Molech, the little six-pointed star, and all of those things. You know why they do? I feel sorry for them. I'm not making fun of them. I would help them any way, shape, or form that I could. That's my job. But I understand why 
Christians are weak today. I know why young men and young ladies get saved but then can't stand for God. I know why the world bends them and blows them in the wind. I know why they, don't, they marry the wrong people. I know why their life become a mess. I know why they don't raise their kids right. I understand all of those reasons is because they've got all kinds of food to eat but they are starving to death spiritually. Want another study? The Bible is your balanced diet. Seven things that Bible is that you need to have in your spiritual diet. First thing, it's water, John chapter 4. Second thing, it's milk in 1 Peter chapter 2. Second, third thing is meat in Hebrews chapter 5. Fourth thing is honey in Psalms chapter 119. Fifth thing is apples in Proverbs chapter 7. Sixth thing is bread, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 4. And the last thing is vegetables in Psalms chapter 78. A balanced diet spiritually. Add on top of that, you can build with the Bible. It's like into a hammer and it's like into a nail in the book of Isaiah. Add to that, you can defend yourself with it. It's like into a sword in Hebrews chapter. I mean, it never ends. But the thing that's wrong with Americans today is that there is a famine in the land. And it's not a famine of food and water. It's a famine of the Word of God, which Christians are starving to death, and they can't get the spiritual nourishment that they need, and therefore they're just existing, they're anemic, they're susceptible to all kinds of worldly diseases, as far as the world destroying their Christian walk in their life, and they are in one mess. I don't know whoever coined it, but years ago when I was a kid growing up, somebody talked about Wonder Bread. And Wonder Bread built strong bodies 12 ways. Well, I don't know. Back then it was a little white loaf with little colored balloons on it. But since long after that, there's the Wonder Bread right there. And that will build your strong spiritual bodies. And yes, it has to do with the number 12. 12 tribes in a nation of Israel. But that would be another message. Then there's the last concept. The last concept is probably the greatest concept in the theme of the book. The restoration of the nation of Israel. I said earlier that in chapter 9 uh, is one of the greatest verses in all the Bible on God restoring the Jews. And biblically, uh, it's, it's historically, it all rises around that. Now here's what he says. I'm going to start reading in 9.13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountain shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel." And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled out, out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Now I'm not going to go through the history of the nation of Israel again. We've studied it many, many times. But you and I know from what we've studied in the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches that the greatest last sign before the Christ comes back was the nation of Israel getting back in the land as a nation. And that took place in 1948. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself makes reference to that great time period and says that the, uh, that the uh, tribulation period and the second coming of Christ will come back before that generation dies off the planet of the earth. So we're right there. We know that. If you know anything about the Bible at all, you know you're watching the last grains of sand drop through God's hourglass before God comes back. But I want to tell you something, this thing in Amos, historically, as it fits into history in the nation of Israel, is quite an impressive chapter. And I want to tell you another story, and with this I'm finished. I don't know if you know it or not, some of you do, some of you don't. When he comes down there in verse 14 and he says, I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, that happened in 1918. 
when he says down there in verse 14, build the waste cities. That happened in our time in 1948. And then he says in verse 15, I will plant them upon their land. That's the millennium that's going to take place after the second coming of Christ any time after the rapture of the church when God lays it all out as he has many, many times and we know how that lays out prophetically in our Bibles. But I want to show you something. Jesus said that uh, when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is nigh, it's over. Fig tree's the nation of Israel. The greatest miracle in all of history, in the New Testament sense, after the Bible was completed, the greatest miracle that rivals the splitting of the Red Sea, that rivals the fire coming down in, uh, in, in Egypt time, the rivers, the, the quail and the manna coming down in Exodus, uh, all, the sun going back in, in Joshua, all of those things. The greatest modern-day miracle that we have had in our lives is the nation of Israel going back to that land and getting back in Jerusalem. That was the thing that shocked the world for 5,000 5, years. They were out of that land, kicked around one side and down the other. And finally, uh, they got back in the land and they got what God wanted them to have. And now the process has begun. Let me tell you about that process. It's quite interesting. After World War I, the British government looked at the contribution that a Jewish man had made. His name was Wiesman. And in 1914, 15, and 16, this man named Wiesman had developed a form of smokeless gunpowder that revolutionized military warfare. And he was in England at the time. And he brought about the, really precipitated the end of World War I in a, in a masterful way just by developing this. Well, I don't know if you know this. In 1914, just by a wild stroke of coincidences, England own Jerusalem up to that time for the last 2,000 years or certainly since the Crusades that it was run by the Turks the Muslims <clears throat> they had it and a guy by the name of General Allenby had kicked the Turks out now let me give you another coincidence you know how he did it the Turks had never seen airplanes before and airplanes were just coming into their own. In fact, the first aerial combat was in World War I with those little biplanes, you know. And they called them biplanes because they were so rickety when the pilot got in, you said goodbye because you never thought you'd see him again, you know. And, 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 but, but, but the Turks had never seen planes. And Lord Ellaby had the Air Force. He had the RAF fly. I mean, the sky was black with planes. And those planes flew low over Jerusalem, scared the fire out of the Turks. And they ran. At, they, they, they just thought they, they had never seen them before. And then knowing that the army was right on their heels and the whole British 8th Army was ready to attack, they fled the city. Now, Isaiah chapter 31 verse 5, talking about the restoration of the nation of Israel and the Jews going back, says this. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. Those planes, just like the eagles in Isaiah, scared out those Turks. If that wasn't enough, 
it was RAF Squadron Number 14, whose motto painted on the sides of their planes was, I spread my wings and keep my promises. God had a plan with his nation, England, who was honoring his word, who God had made the greatest nation on earth now to bring that Jew back. And in 1918, once they had the land, a man by the name of Lord Balfour stood up in British Parliament and said, I say, old chap, I think we need to do something for this Jewish people. I mean, this, this, this uh, bloke, uh, Weisman, uh, uh, he did an incredible thing for us. We would uh, all be goose-stepping down the uh, White Hall if it wouldn't been for him. And uh, I think uh, we need to do something. And uh, let's, uh, why don't we make a proclamation? In fact, I'll sponsor it. Um, why don't we make a declaration that that land over there is theirs? We've got it now. Let's give it back to the nation of Israel. Let's give it back to the Jews. After all, they need to have a homeland too. And everybody in Parliament said, Here, 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 here. Yes, that's quite right, old boy. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And they decided to do it. Well, they said they were going to do it. So Lord Belfar put forth what is called in 1918 the Belfar Declaration. And everybody was all humped up about it, ready to go. Then about that time, the Grand Mafia of Arabia shows up. He comes over there and he says, oh, by the way, guys, let me just tell you, I heard the rumor that you're going to give the, Jew, the land back to the Jew. Well, let me just remind you that uh, you get all your oil from us and you are an island nation and I don't see many gas stations out there in the English Channel. So here's the deal, boys. You give the Jew back to the land of them and you don't get any more oil from us. Well, they took a vote on it and Parliament was deadlocked on it. They sent a young man over to scope it out. His name was Winston Churchill. He come back and wrote a little thesis called the white paper and in that white paper because of the pressure put on him by Arabia and all those guys he said you know what we don't going to give the land back to the Jew we're going to keep it and uh, we're, we're not going to give it back to him and uh, we better not do that and so they voted again and Winston Churchill's one vote turned the tide against giving the Jew back to the land in Parliament Sir John Howe a born again blood-washed, child-of-God Christian. Sir John Howe stood up in Parliament with tears running down his face and read Amos chapter 9, verses 13, 14, and 15 from a King James 1611 authorized version, and he read it. He said, The days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the tread of the grapes, him that soweth. In verse 14, I will bring again their captivity. I will build them. Verse 15, 16, I'll plant them. And after he read it, he said, Gentlemen, we have made the most gross mistake we have ever made in the history of our country. The Bible says that land belongs to the Jew. It's their land. And we have erred greatly today not giving them their land. That land, he said, belonged to the Jew. Now let me tell you something. When God was finished with England at the end of World War II, she was bankrupt and broken, and the Jew went back to the land, and in 1948 she became a nation, and right now we are waiting, waiting for God to plant them in the millennia. I mean, the next event, ladies and gentlemen, is the rapture of the church. Then the tribulation period for the Jew. And then Christ comes back, Millennial reign of Christ, and he says in verse 15, I will plant them upon their land, and nobody's going to take them out. Wow. You know what God said? Before I do anything, I'll show it to you. I'll give it to you. And the things I give to you, those are the things that become special to you. 
And if you believe your Bible and you read history and you keep both eyes open and you look around, you can't help but see the hand of God in everything around this world today, especially in the Middle East. Everything is posed to bring about the restoration of the nation of Israel. There's only one thing holding it back, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the exodus of the body of Christ in the rapture of the church, you and me, going to happen any second. The last major event was the Jew becoming a nation. Somebody said to me one time, what's the next sign for the church? Brother, I'm not looking for a sign. I'm listening for a sound. And that's the sound of the voice of the ark of the trump, of the archangel, of the voice of God. Book of Amos focuses on that concept of God restoring the nation of Israel. On six great concepts that fit into your life and my life that God will always do what he says he does. Every head bowed and every eye closed.